Hopefully by now you know our theme for 2016 of strong and courageous. And we have really been trying to impress upon ourselves by studying the word that God is leading us places as a family. And in order to do that, in order for him to lead us, we got to trust him. That's always been the challenge of God's people. And so we have been looking at the, uses our theme verse, Joshua chapter 1 verse 9, which says, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God goes with you wherever you go. We're reminded that no matter what changes come about in our church, in our nation, in our world, that we still serve a God that we can trust. And as we think about that theme this year, we have talked about being strong and courageous. We just finished up our series called The Blessing, and I'm so excited today. We're starting our Easter series, um, and we are going to talk about that in just a minute. As part of this journey, we've been uh, on the Northside 90 Days reading program. Here is Terry Kingsley. He is teeing off. I, I love this picture. Golf is the only game where I consistently was tempted to lose my religion uh, every time I played. But Terry Kingsley, he's, he's doing the right thing there. And uh, I love that he is taking it out on the links with him and just making that a part of his routine. I hope that you are making your daily Bible reading, whether it's the Northside 90-day plan or whatever plan you use, that you're intentionally, purposefully uh, making that a part of your day and routine. As far as the Northside 90-day plan goes, we are at day 57, which means we're almost two-thirds of the way done. So congratulations to those of you who have kept up with it. It's not been an easy journey. It's, you know, we've got about, a, um, about five more weeks to go. So hang in there. Now, there are others of you who haven't started and you just kind of hate this part of the sermon, kind of tune out, think about what are they serving at guest lunch today, what are we having afterward. Uh, and that's, I, I want to speak a word of encouragement to you. I, I'd rather you start today than not at all. If it's not this plan, then a plan. But if you're going to learn to trust in the Lord your God, you've got to study the letter that he wrote to you. And you've got to impress it upon your heart. And you got to make it a part of your life. So jump in. If you haven't been starting with that, started with that, then please jump in today and keep us posted with your pictures and responses to that day's reading. And today, as I said, we are beginning our Easter series called Glorious Day. We're going to really look at the, the gospel message. Uh, not just talking about the empty tomb. Of course, that's the, the greatest part of the story. But we're going to start by talking about the life and the death and the burial of Jesus and what implications that has for our lives today. It is so easy, granted, having been a Christian 25 years now, it is so easy to take this story for granted. It's so easy to go, oh, yeah, we kind of know how it ends. We're, no surprises here. Ho-hum, Jesus raised from the dead. That shouldn't be our attitude. And so we need to come back to the word. We need to be in, uh, corrected by the spirit and be reminded that this is a story of hope. This is a story that gives people hope. And that if we know it and it permeates in our lives, we have an opportunity to share it with those who don't yet know it. So I encourage you to come and I also encourage you to join us. Uh, bring your friends, neighbors, family members. This is an excellent time of year. The world is going to be focused on the Easter message anyway. What a great time for someone that doesn't know Christ to come and hear that story that you've heard over and over again, and maybe they've never heard. 
So be thinking about that and hopefully plan to bring along a friend or a neighbor or family member as we are a part of that. Have you ever been asked the question? I think there's times in life when we come face to face with it, when we, when we see something or some things happening in the world and we're faced with the question. It's a question that uh, unbelievers ask. It's a question that non-believers ask. When they look around the world and they see uh, evil and, and injustice, they, they, they look around at things and they say, that should not be. And what usually comes next to a person of faith is the question. When the 24-hour TV news cycle goes on and on about major world events, when we watch in real time evil unfolding, it's impossible not to take a step back and, and be asking the question. I remember this day, we were in the offices Tuesday morning and of course, like everyone else, we were watching the evil unfolding in real time. But in particular, I remember the response of our nation and how that following Wednesday and all throughout the week, people wanted to come to the building to pray. Uh, we had a prayer service that Wednesday night and people were, I mean, the pews were packed that Sunday. Why? Because they were thinking about the question. If you've viewed some of the recent catastrophes like school shootings and, and some of the things that are going on around the nation, and it's impossible not to, to linger over the question. And more recently, here locally, we, we faced a tragedy as a, as a lone crazed gunman went in and ended the lives of people tragically, changed their world, changed their family's world forever, changed the lives of their co-workers that, that whole plant will never be the same because they're all asking the question. It's the hardest part about being where I am because I'm the guy that's supposed to answer the question. By now, I guess you're probably wondering what the question is or maybe you already know because maybe it's hit you personally when you get a, a child who's diagnosed with cancer or you're in a car wreck that changes your life or you, you lose your job, or, or things just go from bad to worse, family is falling apart, the world around you seems to be crumbling, maybe you have asked the question. The question is, why doesn't God do something? For those people who don't believe, those people who are having a hard time believing, maybe you heard this morning, and you're skeptical. Person, you're not sure about this whole God thing. Probably one of the biggest obstacles is this question. We look all around the world, the nation, here right here in, in the state of Kansas, even in our own lives, and point to things that have happened that shouldn't have happened, that don't seem right. And we ask, where was he? Why did it happen? Why did he allow it to happen? That's what we're going to talk about this morning, and I want to tell you that the answer really comes in three parts. You see, most of our trouble has started since the garden. And in that moment, when we chose evil, now the Bible calls it sin, 
But really it was the first step toward evil. Because it was the first step away from God. In that moment, in the garden, as Eve partook of the thing which she was not, which she was told not to partake of, she unleashed something the likes of which she would never know. So when we look at around the world and we look in our own personal lives, the problem we face is evil. You say, okay. But let me put to you that evil is not a God problem. Evil is an us problem. We've been running from God since the garden and yet proclaiming that he is hard to find. And so the only answer to eradicate evil is one of two things. He either has to eradicate us. He sort of did that one time. The Bible calls it the story of the flood. He only found one man who was considered righteous, and he and his whole family were saved through that ark. But everyone else, and we focus on the people going into the ark, but I just want to focus on everybody outside the ark. However many people there were in the world at that time, God wiped them out with a flood. Did that eradicate the problem of evil? Nope. Because not long after that old ark came to the rest on the mountain, and Noah got out. So did sin, and sin grew right back. You see, to deal with sin and evil, you have to deal with the root. I have uh, had a couple of rose bushes in the front of my house. You may love rose bushes. You don't love these rose bushes. They are knockout roses uh, because they will literally knock you out every time you go to try to prune them, covered with thorns. And they just kept getting bigger because I, you know, just trying to keep control of them. And Christy said, you know, let's just get rid of those things. There's only one answer to that. And you, you can't just cut the thing off. You got to pull the thing out. You got to do some digging. You got to get to the root. So I hooked up my truck and I, I hooked up a, a cable, wrapped it around a couple times, yanked that sucker out, but it was stuck in there. It was, it was deeply rooted. You understand if God's going to deal with evil, he's got to deal with sin in the same way. He's got to get to the root. The problem is that the root is deeply rooted within the people he loves dearly. It's rooted within us. So he can either wipe us out, he can take away all of our free will, in which then we truly can't love him or obey him at all because without free will we don't. We've got quite of a, a, a quite of predicament here. How do we deal with the problem? The good news is that God is smarter than us. And he did something, and he did it so huge. He did it so brilliantly that it's, it's hard to even wrap our minds around. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. He was doing something before anything began. Long before you existed, long before your parents or your grandparents or your great-grandparents, long before this nation existed, long before nations existed or kingdoms were around, there he was. Back in long before the garden, long before creating water and trees and vegetation and plant life, long before creating mass, something, everything from nothing, 
Long before light, there he was. The darling of history, the darling of eternity. John says it this way that Trey read for us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Now understand he's not talking about a book. He's talking about the Son of God, the living Word. It says he existed long before he came to earth. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that light, life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, starting in about verse 15, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, either thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. You need to understand when we talk about the life of Christ, we're not just talking about 33 years when a man from Jerusalem told an amazing story and amazed people with what he did and what he taught. We're talking about a story that goes much, 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 much farther than our understanding. He was before the beginning, and he'll be after the ending. Scripture says he is the Alpha and the Omega, the very first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. He is the first and the last. It's all about him. He's been doing something before anything began, and yet also he, was been, he has been doing something all along. The Scripture says lots of things about Jesus. By one count... 353 prophecies individually made in Genesis through Malachi talking about this one man who was to come. You need to understand that Jesus was not an afterthought. He was a forethought. Everything began with him. Everything began by him. There was nothing made that wasn't made for this very purpose. You see, some people say, well, God in his omniscience, he didn't see sin coming. He didn't understand when he created us that the sin would come into the world and all the evil would abound and all these bad things wouldn't happen. Why would he let that happen? Because he knew it would. Because he had an answer. Because he had a plan for dealing with all the evil before all the evil began. He had an answer to the question before the question was even thought of. It's what some theologians call the scarlet thread of Scripture. These prophecies that I mentioned are like this thread that weaves throughout Scripture. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. These prophecies are things that as you read in Scripture... You'll be reading along and all of a sudden something will stand out and you think, well, does that really apply here? Is that really talking about this situation? Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. Of course, Genesis 3 is the story of the fall of man, sin entering the world. In verse 6, nine simple verses later, God starts unraveling the thread. 
Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Read along with me. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. I remember reading that for the first time as like a 12 or 13 year old thinking, I don't understand what that means. Is that saying Eve's going to be afraid of snakes her whole life? What's this talking about? Serpents and offspring. There are no offspring. It's Adam and Eve and the serpent. What are we talking about? And so God begins unraveling one chapter, one verse at a time, the story of the coming Messiah. You see, Genesis chapter 3 is the story of a, of a broken people who are distant now from God. God has to force them out. And he's going to continue weaving this thread all throughout Scripture. And this thread simply says one thing. Hang on. There's a hope. Hang on. There's an answer. I've got a plan. I haven't forgotten you. I haven't let you go. These 353 prophecies weave throughout the tapestry of Scripture. Every now and again, you come back to one and you read them and you're reminded God had a plan. God had an answer to the question before the question even began. This morning, I want to share a little bit of some of those prophecies. And I want you to understand that you too, as Tyler emphasized this morning in his talk, you too are a part of this remnant, of this legacy. That the the thread runs through you as well. So, at each section... This section, this section, all the sections here at Northside. On the second row, at this end, there is a spool of thread, just like this. The person closest, like Michelle, (laughs) I'm I'm looking at you. If you'll scoot down there and get it. And what I want you to do, just what I'm going to do to Jacob here. I don't trip over my thread. The first person is the key to all of this. He's going to take the thread that starts with a yellow sticker. And then he's simply going to pass the thread down. Now, these teens are going to pass it down. And when it gets to the end, I want you to pass it backwards. So hold on to it. Pass it backwards. And keep and hold on to the thread. So as you go through, and a second row, does everybody have one? Do you have it over here? Have we started it over here, Patricia? We have one right over here. Just hold on to that and pass it down. You guys at Church of Christers, you've done Lord's Supper. You know what it is. Pass it down. (laughs) Now, pass it down. When it gets to the end of the row, pass it back. Pass it down and pass it back. Pass it down and pass it back. Don't make it too complicated. Just pass it down and pass it back. And while you're doing that, I want to read some scriptures for you. Hold on to that thread when you get it and just listen. We said Genesis 3 verse 15 said the Messiah would be born of a woman. Micah 5 2 says he would be born in Bethlehem. Isaiah 7 says he would be born of a virgin. Genesis 12 said he was come from the line of Abraham. Numbers chapter 24 said he would be a descendant of Jacob. Are you passing the thread? Genesis 49 said he would come from the tribe of Judah. 2 Samuel chapter 7 said he would be heir to King David's throne. 
Psalm 45 said he, his throne would be anointed and eternal. Some of you having trouble with the thread. That's okay. Not the first time. <laughs> Just keep on unrolling it. Hosea chapter 11 said he would spread from, he would spend a season in Egypt. Jeremiah 31 said a massacre would happen at the time of his birth. Isaiah 40 said a messenger like John the Baptist would prepare the way for the Messiah. Psalm 69 said he'd be rejected by his own people. You have part of the thread? Deuteronomy 18 said that the Messiah would be a prophet. Malachi 4 said he would be preceded by Elijah. Psalm 2 said he would be declared the Son of God. Isaiah 11 said he would be called a Nazarene. Isaiah 9 said he would be a light to Galilee. Psalm 78 said he would speak in parables. Psalm, Isaiah 61 said he would be sent to heal the brokenhearted. Do you have hold of the thread? Psalm 110 said he would be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Psalm chapter 2 said he would be called a king. Psalm chapter 8 said he would be praised by little children. This thread. Psalm chapter 41 said he would be betrayed. Zechariah 11 said his, he would be betrayed for just 30 pieces of silver. Psalm 35 says he would be falsely accused. Isaiah 53 says when he was accused... He would not respond, but rather be silent. Isaiah chapter 50 says he would be sat upon and struck. Are you getting the thread? Do you have it yet? Are you holding it yet? Is the thread in your hand? More importantly, is the thread in your heart? Psalm 35 says he would be hated without cause. Isaiah 53 says he would be crucified with criminals. Psalm 69 said he would be given vinegar to drink as he breathed his last, last word. Psalm 22 says he would be mocked and beaten and ridiculed. That the soldiers gathered round him would gamble with the last few items of his clothing. Exodus chapter 12 said his bones would not be broken. Psalm 109 said he would pray for his enemies. Isaiah 53 said he would be buried with the rich. Psalm 16 says he would be resurrected from the dead. And Psalm chapter 24 says he would ascend to heaven. And Psalm 68 says he would ascend to the right hand of God. Now, it's interesting to see Jesus in the prophecies, but Jesus is also there in the stories of the people. Now, you're holding on to that thread which ran through the pages of Scripture. But think about this for just a second. Think of the stories of the people that followed after God in the Old Testament, Tim Keller writes this wonderfully, and I, I want to repeat what he said. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the wilderness, not the garden, and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel who, though innocently slain by wicked hands, has blood now that cries out not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all that is comfortable and familiar and go come down to the world, not knowing where he went to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac who is not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us. Do you have the thread? 
Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice that we deserve. So we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed him and sold him and uses his power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who meditates a new and better covenant. Jesus is the true and better Joshua who leads us into the land of eternal rest and heavenly blessing. Jesus is the true and better Job who, being truly innocent sufferer, then intercedes for and saves his very stupid friends. Jesus is the true and better David whose victory becomes his people's victory. And though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves, they will relish in it. Jesus is true and better. It wasn't just about the prophecies. It wasn't just about the people. This thread helps us understand that the entire Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, the entire Word of God isn't about you. It's about Him. From Genesis chapter 3, when that thread started to unravel, all the way through those books and through those people and their stories, we are given a story. And His story doesn't just stop in the pages of Scripture. It continues to run today. That thread continues to run 2,000 years past the events of this book into the lives and stories of us today. His life is not just our life. It's the life of people who are not yet in this room. Are, are the, is the thread at the very back of each section? Where is it? Hold it up. Hold it up. Yeah, see, we got these threads back here. Go ahead. Hold it up. You see, there's so much left to unravel. There's people yet who don't yet know that story, who haven't yet taken a hold of that thread. We need not forget them because their story is as much of a part of our story as we are. That thread continues throughout all the pages of Scripture, throughout all centuries of time, to be reminded that He is the forever. He is the Alpha and the Omega in him we have one common thread. Galatians chapter 4 verses 4 through 5 says this. When the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Usually at this point in the sermon, it's time for the preacher to tell a touching story. You might hear the story about the, the bridge keeper, for example. The, the bridge keeper, he, he manned the bridge that covered, it was a railroad bridge, but it spanned a great river. And so occasionally the bridge had to be turned to allow ships to come through and then rotated back so the trains could cross over. And one day he was bringing the, the bridge back and his little son who had come with him to work that day uh, went down onto the tracks and was playing there on the train. And because of some circumstances of what happened on the tracks, the, the, the father could not make the tracks come down for the train to cross unless he sacrificed his son. And so there's this pressing moment in the story where the father has to make a decision to save the people or to save his son. And that's a beautiful, touching story, but it completely, completely misses the gospel. 
Because when Jesus came down to earth, it wasn't just an afterthought. It wasn't, oh, I hope everything goes well down there. And then they killed him. And then now what was he going to do? No, he knew it was God's will to send his son. It was God's will, says Isaiah 53, to crush him and cause him to suffer. In a way no father could ever imagine. With great, understandable love for us, he sent his son intentionally down here to die. It wasn't a choice. He knew what he sent his son to do. That's what kind of love our father has for us. Or you might know the story of, or have heard the story about the, a, a great disease spreading throughout the world. And no one could find a cure. No, no cure could be found in any laboratory. Scientists were working on it. And yet there was this little boy who had something in his blood that a, a, a solution could be found. A serum could be made, but they could only use it if they took all of his blood. And so they had to choose between saving the son and saving the world. And you need to understand that's a beautiful story, but that's not the gospel. Because the gospel says that God, before we were even able to ask the question, had an answer. And it involved his son. His, his life was no afterthought or accident. It was always part of the plan. Which leads us to the third point. He did something that we could never do. And that is to save ourselves. You remember the story in Genesis chapter 3? When they disobeyed God, the first thing they began to do when they realized, oh, we're naked, is they began to sew fig leaf coverings for themselves. Coverings to, to cover the humiliating parts of themselves so that no one would see and when God found out that they had sinned, he made animal coverings for them, skins. If you do your reasoning, you understand that God had to, had to make a sacrifice so that the animal's skin could be used so that they could wear them. A foreshadowing, a reminding that human beings will forever be trying the fig leaves. We'll forever be trying to, to cover ourselves, to make ourselves better, to make ourselves measure up, to do enough good works, to achieve everything that would make God happy. But you understand a sacrifice has to be made. He did what we couldn't do. He, we could not save ourselves. So he sent his son. First John chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. This life appeared and we have seen and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. God not only took the infinite and made him finite, when he took on human form, he took on, well, his nature didn't change, but his position did. Philippians chapter 2 says uh, that he was, though he was God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but laid it down, taking, made himself nothing, verse 7 says, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. It's hard for us to understand that the infinite becoming finite. I'll try to give you an example. Try to imagine becoming a worm or a slug. 
Try to imagine you with all the abilities and thoughts and creativities and skills and the, the beautifully complex creature you are stepping down into the form of a worm or a slug. That is what Jesus did. But he wasn't the best of slugs or worms. No, he was a servant of all worms and he suffered and died so that he might redeem them. It is the gracious, voluntary act of the Son of God in which he assumed a human body. The Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, became a man. It is one of the greatest events to occur in the history of the universe. It is without equal or parallel. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 and 15 says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Tomorrow morning in this very room will be a celebration of the life of Herschel Gilmer. Herschel Gilmer, if you didn't know him, was a prince of a fellow. I'll miss him dearly. But don't misunderstand, Herschel is not dead. No, he's more alive than he's ever been. And his mind is more clear, and his body is 100%, and he sees as clear as he's ever seen. And why? Because he's holding on to that thread. That thread which started in Genesis 3, which started even before then, and will run all throughout eternity. Now, this morning, if you are not holding on to the thread... If you haven't yet taken hold of Christ by letting him take a hold of you, by putting him on in the waters of baptism, if you haven't yet taken hold of him, let me warn you, let me tell you, let me plead with you, you are not ready to step into eternity. If you look down at that thread and you say, I can't take hold of it, I'm not in Christ, I haven't confessed him as Lord, I haven't put sin behind me, I haven't gone down into the water, then you are not ready. But the good news is you can be ready. You can start this morning if you're ready. Because of what he did, because of that thread, if you'll take hold, let him take hold of you, then you can experience the glorious redemption that began with the life of Christ. C.S. Lewis said, the Son of God became a man to enable men to become the sons of God. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in an obscure, another obscure village where he worked in a carpenter's shop. Until he was 30 when public opinion turned against him. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never visited a big city. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of the things usually associated with greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33. And when he died, his friends ran away. The best ones even denied him. He was turned over to his enemies and went through a mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves while dying. Executioners gambled for his only property he had on earth, his clothing. And when he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave from, through the pity of a friend. Twenty centuries have come and gone. And yet today Jesus is the central figure of the human race. His thread still runs and the leader of mankind's progress, all the armies that have ever marched, all the navies that have ever sailed, all the parliaments that have ever sat, all the kings that have ever reigned put together have not affected the life of mankind on earth 
as powerfully as his one solitary life. Why did he do that? Because he loves you. He loved you enough to leave heaven to find you. He loved you enough to become a man to redeem you to God. He loved you enough to live a humble life on earth that you might have the glories of heaven. He loved you enough to lay down his life that you might live forever. If you are ready to take hold of the thread this morning, I'm ready for you to come. I'm ready to extend it to you. I'm ready to tell you about it. I'll do whatever I can, but take hold of it because it's the only way into eternity. If you need Christ or if you've let go of the thread and you need to return to him, come to the front. We'll be glad to help you as together we stand and sing.